This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome. It's another top podcast from uh, Books of the Year. We're your friends at Books of the Year, I think. We've established that over a series of countless episodes. I've now lost count of how many we've done. Now, we're going to be speaking to uh, American author T.J. Newman. Yes. Um, T.J. is what's on the front uh, of the book. but yeah. She's called Tori, but uh-huh. T.J. is what we're going to Correct. call her. And... Budding authors, I would say, this is going to be, you know, people who want to get published should definitely listen to this one, although you will be incredibly jealous. <laughs> <laughs> because because her first novel was so successful, as you're about to hear, and her second novel is going to be stunningly successful. Correct. Uh, but I think, it, I think it should be a, a good listen. Anyway, you can get in touch with us, and we got an email here from Ellie Donovan. You email uh, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Dear thriller and psychological thriller. Uh, this is Ellie Donovan, Newcastle under Lyme. Thanks for the pod every week. And I mean every week. You yeah. guys are doing a stellar job. We are. Every week. I've always been a one-book-at-a-time kind of person, but recently started reading a non-fiction and a fiction book at the same time. It is liberating and feels like I'm reading more books than I actually am each month. I just wondered if you two ever have more than one book on the go, and if so, do you flit between fiction and non-fiction. Keep up the good work. Yes. So I, um, through necessity, so I obviously, we well, we feature some uh, non-fiction on, on this podcast, but mainly it's, it's fiction. So most of the fiction that I read is uh, books that are going to feature on this podcast. And the non-fiction tends to be, because I judge this um, Sports Book of the Year prize, oh, yes. so I read an awful lot of sport books. Um, so, yeah, and I, I do enjoy... I, I tend to read fiction when I'm on the tube and non-fiction when I'm in the garden at home. Uh, so, so oh, yeah. That, so that's that's very structured. It is, isn't it? And I've just realised that that's what I do. And it would no, feel I'm weird. on the tube. <laughs> I cannot read sport on the tube. Those are the rules. So, what about you? Uh, I mean, I I'm certainly not structured like that. We always have two or three books on the go because of this because of this yeah. podcast. Yeah, it's an interesting idea to have. Well, have a non-fiction and a fiction on the go. I mean, actually, as it happens, I have got a fiction and a non-fiction on the go because we always. So it's been this book. It's been the T.J. Uh, Newman book about which you're going to hear. But I'm also reading Raphael Baer's Politics: A Survivor's Guide. Oh yes, I've heard about this. Uh, yeah. How to stay engaged without getting enraged, which is fantastic, you know, and really, really good sort of explainer about politics. And he, he Raphael manages to, he ties it in, he had a, a heart attack. He's a very young guy. So he's trying to, and part of that was the stressful nature of his job, which is to report on politics, but also the fact he was smoking like a chimney. And yeah, he, you know, that was kind of partly involved in it anyway. But he's managed to tie the two in, and it's a very entertaining 
read, but um, having fiction and non-fiction on the go is very good. If if you're trying that, then uh, get in touch with us, Books of the Year Yahoo.com. Um, we'll yes, a, a tweet from Sue says, thanks, Books of the Year, for uh, recommending The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, which was a while ago. I think, I think that was last year. I've just started it. It's great, a salutary and amazing story, uh, which it is. I, I, actually, that was, that was my favourite book that we did last year. And, so. yeah, Jonathan has had an awful lot of success um, out of that. So there's there's another non-fiction book which we have yeah. covered uh, on this. But it, what's really smart about that is because Jonathan Freeland wrote thrillers as Sam Bourne. Of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, it feels like it's a thriller and he's written mm. it like a thriller. Yeah, no, it's very good. Uh, so, yes, definitely look out uh, for that. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email booksoftheyearyahoo.com. We're also on Twitter. At Books of the Year, and we're on Instagram at Pick Any Page. Oh, I should have said. Are that. we? Are we? On, are you actually on Instagram yet? Because I'm mean, not yet. Not well, I mean, we are. I am now. I'm, in fact, I'm going to join. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Uh, so on with the uh, on with the interview. T.J. Newman time. Okay, uh, let's welcome from the United States of America our top author for today's pod. That is T.J. Newman. Hello, T.J. Where do you join us from? Good morning. I join you um, from Phoenix, Arizona. It's about 5.30 in the morning where <laughs> I am, which makes it what, what time, your time? It's about 1.30. Uh, it's, a very, it's a lovely summer's lunchtime in London town. That sounds lovely. I, I live in the desert here. It's starting to get pretty hot over here. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, we can't really compete with heat. No. That's, that, that's, <laughs> that's certainly true. But I, I'm genuinely impressed that you get up at 5.30 for us. So thank you very much, because I, su I suspect in a couple of books' time, we'll have to come to Arizona to do yeah. this interview, <laughs> because the only way T.J. Newman will be doing interviews <laughs> is if you arrive at her ranch and speak to her PA. She's not getting up at 5.30. Absolutely No not. way. Guaranteed. Anyway, I wonder if one of, is one of the reasons... Are you good at 5.30? I imagine because... I mean, this will come up when we, when we go more into flying and airlines and things like that. You've flown so many red-eye flights. Are you, is 5.30 in the morning perfectly fine for you? Because, boy, you've done a lot worse than that. You know, I am, I am still a night owl. Um, with coffee, I can, I can be ready at any point in time, but uh, my natural state is definitely leaning towards Night Owl. I always wonder with these interviews, I'm like waiting for somebody to say, we're going to do an interview at 1 a.m. And I'd be like, oh, perfect, perfect, I'm set, let's go. Right, okay, well, uh, anyway, so we appreciate your commitment. Anyway, so Drowning, The Rescue of Flight 1421 is the book by T.J. Newman. Matt is going to describe the cover, which I have to say I think is the best cover of any book that I have seen for many years. It, it does. It punches off the page, doesn't it, this cover? So, um, the main colours here, blue blue and black, but really the thing that's going to catch your eye is the sight of a plane going down. And it's only when you get closer to the book that you realise the plane is not only going down, it is going down into the sea with bubbles and dark blue and waves above and drowning is 
right there in the middle of it, the rescue of flight four, uh, 1421, picked out in white, uh, TJ Newman's name in red, uh, internationally best-selling author of Falling, and then some very nice things from Adrian McKinty and James Patterson, who calls it the first terrific thriller of 2023. Well, I kind of think that's all anyone needs to know, really. Yeah. So if James Patterson says it's the best, the first terrific thriller of the year and it's got a great cover, that's all we need to say, TJ, I think. Isn't yeah. I was going to say, after that introduction, I feel like interview done. Like <laughs> yeah, you, that's it. <laughs> you covered it. You sold the book. I don't have anything to add to that. I'd, I'd buy that book and I wrote that book. Yeah. book. OK, so... Um, for anyone who didn't catch falling, just get us up to speed with your history because it is absolutely relevant to the area that we're going to talk about for uh, for drowning. So you used to work on a, on planes. So this used to be your your workspace. Absolutely, I was a flight attendant for ten years. I flew for Virgin America, which was you know the American uh, branch of the Virgin brand, um, and I got ideas at work and I wrote at work. I worked red eyes, and once I got the passengers to sleep, I would stand in the forward galley and write by hand. I would write, you know, on the back of catering bills and passenger manifests, and I'd grab a cocktail napkin to scribble down a note, and that's how I cobbled together my first book, was by hand, at work, on a plane. And that met with such stunning success uh, and a two-book deal. So this is the second uh, of the two-book deal, and we're still on. We're still on the plane. And I mentioned your history uh, as a flight attendant because it is self-evident to anyone who reads *Drowning* that you know exactly what you're talking about. So introduce us to Flight 1421, a flight that no one wants to be on no. at all. But just introduce us to where we are and who the cast are. Who are the people who are on this flight? Sure. The book tells the story of the rescue of Flight 1421, a flight from Honolulu to San Francisco that crashes into the ocean six minutes after takeoff. The passengers immediately evacuate until an explosion forces those who didn't get out in time to close the doors. But it's too late. The plane floods and sinks. Twelve people trapped inside, including a father and his 11-year-old daughter. So now their only hope at survival lies with an elite rescue team on the surface led by her mother and his soon-to-be ex-wife. And there you have it. <laughs> and that's, so, And it, th this book gives you absolutely no time to put the book down. That's why uh, it's such a smart book. and it, it is absolutely relentless from the word go. So, for example, the first line, chapter one, Will Kent opened his eyes just in time to see the engine explode. <laughs> That's it. That's the yeah, opening line. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. guys go, OK, fine, I'm hooked. And that is obviously a fantastic uh, device uh, which you've used there. So how much of this story did you know and had you nailed down before you started, TJ? So you said the title of the book is Drowning, The Rescue of Flight 1421. So we know that there is a rescue. Did you know who would be rescued? Did you know how it would happen before you before you set out on this journey? I had a good idea. I knew, um, you know, you you just read the first sentence, and 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 that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to start literally from the first sentence and say, "This is what is going to happen here. This is going to be big. This is going to be a spectacle. This is going to be immense." And I I sort of 
front loaded the entire first part of the book um, with the setup, which was, you know, a plane crash and then the evacuation, then the resulting plane sinking and, and just setting up the thing because the whole concept of the plot is really just the setup, right? It's actually a rescue story. It's about a a race against time and impossible odds to bring a fractured family back together. It's deeply emotional. And when you've got all those spinning plates in the air, I had to know what I was doing ahead of time. I I outlined and and knew the plot before I ever put pen to paper. Um, with my first book, Falling, which was also a very, you know, plot uh, focused book with with a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, a lot of action. I was what's called a pantser in the you know in the in the writing community. You have plotters and pantsers, and pantsers are writers who write by the seat of their pants. They don't know what they're doing when they sit down to write. They just go and let the story evolve as it as it comes to them. With a book like this, I knew that I had to become a plotter. Um, I had to know exactly what I was doing. I had to have a roadmap, a blueprint ahead of time. With Falling, when I was a pantser, it you know took several years to write, and I wrote 30-some drafts. With this one, I did not have quite that same luxury, um, so I knew that I was going to have to get more efficient at it. And, um, and it was a really interesting writing process, trying those two different, different uh, approaches. Uh can you say something about... I mean, I think the, the first breathtaking thing about this book, TJ, is the crash itself. We, because the physics of a, of a plane crash into water, the knowledge of structural engineering that you need to have of a plane as it hits the sea, obviously part of your training will explain how the crew are reacting and what they're saying. But getting the physics and the structural engineering of what happens when a plane crashes is astonishing. How did, how did you get that? Who did you tap into to get all of that absolutely as thrilling as it is? Well, you know, as a, as a flight attendant, we are trained extensively on what to do in the unlikely event of a ditching, which is um, the aviation term for an emergency landing on water is a ditching. Um, so I, I, you know, I just tapped into my own experience there, but what they don't cover in initial training is what happens if the plane actually sinks with people trapped inside still alive. <laughs> so I definitely, as you, as you alluded to, had to reach out to, um, basically ex exactly who you, who you just listed. I spoke with many pilots who helped walk me through what the, uh, situation would have to what the conditions would have to be in order to um, get the plane to crash in the way that I wanted to, um, and to crash in one one piece and stay, you know, stay a viable um, uh, fuselage. So I spoke with them and basically reverse engineered um, the situation because I knew I knew what I wanted to have happen. Right, I wanted a plane crash and I wanted it to be intact and I knew I wanted it to then sink and be teetering on the edge of an undersea cliff. So once I knew kind of the end point, I reverse engineered it back to the beginning and figured out the conditions of how to do that. The pilots helped me figure out how to crash the plane. Um, and and once it got to that point, once it goes underwater, then I spoke with, um, exactly as you said, I spoke with engineers and, and people who could help me troubleshoot what that needed to look like at the at the point that the plane is underwater and we're now mounting a massive rescue 
uh, for the plane, I reached out to the Navy. I spoke with Navy personnel um, who were generous enough to give me, uh, you know, all the information that a civ civilian uh, can have access to and answer some of my um, very strange questions that I had for them. Um, so yeah, I basically just went to as many people who knew the stuff that I didn't know and and uh, they patiently helped me understand it. That that research that you did, TJ, and your own experience, obviously, it just shouts out from the page. And you can always tell, as a reader, you can always tell if a writer knows what they're talking about and there are just little clues in there. And I'm going to argue that the thing that I... The first thing I wrote down is the first thing that Simon yep, wrote down exactly. about this book. And it's... And it's Four words, okay, and it's the same four words. Help me, Jesus buttons, okay. So I'm going to ask you what the help me, Jesus buttons are, because obviously many people listening to this podcast won't know what they are. But as soon as as soon as they appeared on the page, I went, "Oh right, of course," because you would only know that if you worked in that industry. So talk to us first about help me, Jesus buttons. You know the the help me Jesus buttons. There's there's a scene early in the flight where we're we're in the cockpit. The plane is going down. We know the plane is going down, and the first officer is um, describing the buttons in the cockpit up above her head. The buttons that you have to reach up to touch, and those are the buttons that are big, rectangular, flashing red fire emergency buttons. Like they're the buttons you hope you never have. <laughs> And these are all the buttons that they're looking at and pushing the entire six minutes of this flight. So the the, the first officer describes um, a memory that she has of being in the cockpit as a child with her father, who was also a pilot, and her father telling her that the buttons up above are called the Help Me Jesus buttons because they you have to look up to push them, and that reminds you to pray. Because if you're pushing the Help Me Jesus buttons you need to be praying is essentially the idea. And what's funny about that, no one has ever asked me about that, actually. I just came up with that. That's not something I heard really? a pilot say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was just me looking at the diagrams of the cockpit and, and my memories of being in the cockpit and looking up and being like, ooh, those buttons clearly don't look good. And and knowing what those buttons are are telling you and what they do now. Um, and, and yeah, and... That that was one hundred percent me. That's not a pilot. Nobody That's told what me. That's they're going to be called from now on. It absolutely is. I would have placed real money <laughs> on that being real and you not making it up. But it, it led me to another a, a, a sort of slightly different part of the book where you were your your pilot. I think it's the pilot. Um, starts telling some of the. So obviously everyone is now trapped in this plane and it's sinking, and she she starts giving jobs to different different passengers because she says that um if you've if you've done that then it'll help it, it it'll help us all survive and not because you're giving them a job but because you're giving them something to do something to focus focus on that struck me as something that only you would have you would have had that as well i'm just saying before tj answers it I've circled exactly, exactly the same. Exactly the same as me. Page seven, the same bits. This is page seventy-eight. This is them reacting to an article that they've uh, that they've read, where one of the characters' kid has read an article, uh, which basically explains how some people okay. survive and some people don't. So there you go. We're thinking on the same lines, <laughs> TJ. Outstanding. I love this. You know, this is what is so fun about talking to readers after they've read the book, because you never know what's going to stand out to someone, and it's it's always you know the. 
interesting things that you go, really, that moment's interesting. I'm, I'm loving this. But, you know, that actually was a direct um, result of a book that I read. Oh, what's it called? I think it was entitled Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. I'm almost positive that's what it was called. And it was essentially a book about survival in a situation, you know, um, where you have something goes horribly wrong, you know, similar to a plane crash, you know, that sinks to the bottom of the ocean, like who survives and who doesn't and why? And it was a really fascinating look at, um, you know, plane crashes and avalanches and all these disasters that some people walk away from and some people don't. And that um, was a really wonderful, helpful piece of, of research going into this um, because you do wonder, you know, why do some people survive and why do some people not make it? And that was sort of a fascinating um, character study. You know, it, it was an interesting way to look at, well, who are these 12 people that are in this plane? And, and what about them? What about their personalities will help them? And what about their personalities will hurt them in their, in their attempt to survive this situation? Just so that listeners get an idea of the kind of book that you've written, TJ, and the kind of writer that you are, which I think... So this is a stressful book. This is a very tense book. This is a very exciting book. So you have just crashed a plane... Most people haven't survived, but the 12 have, and they are trapped in this plane underwater. Will they get rescued? Will they not get rescued? They don't even know at this stage, I think, whether there's going to be any kind of rescue or not. And at that point, TJ Newman, at that very point, <laughs> yeah. you decide to give a child a reaction to food. They go into anaphylactic shock. And at that point, I shut the book and went... No, 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 no. This is, this is stressful enough, and now you're giving a kid an anaphylactic reaction to, to some food? What, what kind of cruel woman are you? You know, that's the, the number one question that, that I ask myself as, as a writer who writes stories like this. Every single scene I write, I am constantly asking myself, where's the escalation? Because in every single scene, there has to be an escalation. That's just the way that a story like this um, works. It's the way that you get that, you know, can't put it down, pages turning, have to know what happens next, is you have to keep upping the ante. And yeah, it's unfortunate that we have a, a, a little girl who goes into anaphylactic shock and a plane at the bottom of the ocean. But you know what? Emergencies don't happen when you're ready. They happen when you're, when you're not ready. I just think it's important that people know what, they, <laughs> what they're getting themselves into. You know, if they're finding just the idea of a plane crash and being underwater quite a lot to take, that you're prepared to ratchet it up from there. And there you go, in every scene. It is, it is tense, it is propulsive, it is all of that. But I, I hope, it's been, you know, it's been really great to see the reactions to the book and to say, to see so many people say, who, yes, exactly what you're saying. It's big, it's intense, it does not let you go. There's a lot going on here. But I was really surprised at how much I cried, at how emotional it was, at, at the relationships between the characters, because spectacle is only going to get you so far, right? And I realized that very early in the writing process that 
a reader is not going to stay with me for 300 pages if it's only a book about a plane and a crash and a sinking and a flood and a do, you know, all that. They're not going to stick with me for 300 pages for that. The focus of the story has to be on these people, has to be on this couple who have endured tragedy in their own life, which has pushed them apart. And now a potential major tragedy of losing their daughter, you know, is going to potentially bring them back together. That tension, that's the tension, the human element, the human heart of this story, that has to be just as, uh, just as much a focus as the spectacle of the rest of it. So uh, clearly there are characters here, TJ, that we are going to be rooting for. I want to ask you about someone who we are absolutely not going to be rooting for, OK? And if there is a baddie in, in this plane, it is man in a blue polo shirt. He's the one. He's every decision, every, every word out of this guy's mouth is loaded with arrogance, uh, selfish. He's an ass, And and, uh, and, you know, we'll we'll find out what happens to him. But right from the first moment, you are like, I, I am very happy if this guy never comes up from the ocean at all. And I had to think that this guy is based on people that you will have uh, experienced in your in your in your time working on on Virgin America. Would I be right? I've, I've, I'm, I'm not even going to bother answering or, or even waiting for the answer. I'm going to say it definitely is people behaving like that on a flight. You know, the character Andy, the passenger in the blue polo shirt, I think I did a lot of therapy with him, a lot of channeling, <laughs> 10 years worth of, you know, dealing with passengers just like him. And it's so funny that you bring him up because in my mind, as I'm writing, he's he's a peripheral character, right? He's one of the 12, but he's he's certainly not the focus. He's just, you know... He's just one of the personalities within this group. And you gotta have one, right? There's there's you gotta have a little bit of everything. And in my first book, I described a flight as a as a classic bell curve. You know, you've got your standout, you know, exemplars and then just just really the bottom of the barrel. So there it's a whole range of human emotion and and he was sort of that. But it's been really interesting to see readers really bring him up and say, ooh. Andy, golly, did he drive me nuts? And and people really are latching on him. And I think that I think there's a lot of people going through therapy reading that because he is from start to finish, and there's no spoilers here, but from start to finish, this character has no redemption. He's just a jerk. There's no, there's no deeper anything there. He does not have a redeeming moment. He's just a jerk. And I think that people have enjoyed seeing a character, you know, you know, depicted like that because not everybody has, you know, even in a fully fleshed out character that has a rich backstory and a rich life and all this, which he does, that doesn't mean they're a good person. And and readers have really enjoyed, I think, seeing a, a character who's just, just not great. In general, TJ, are there more jerks in first class than there are in the rest of the plane. I think the whole plane is a, you know, is a random uh, sampling of humanity. So you can have a little bit of everything there, depend, you know, regardless of first class or business or coach or where you're seated. But um, in my experience, you know, the, the, the bad ones were, were the rarity. Most of the people that I flew with were, um, were, were lovely. 
Very diplomatic. Yeah. Um, so all your, <laughs> all your friends at the airline will go, oh, I think that's very impressive. Are you only ever going to write books which will never be sold in airports? <laughs> I'm not getting on a plane with this. Oh, in, my. Can you imagine? You're losing, I mean, you know, you're losing a whole audience there. You need to think about that. You know, I, you know, to that point, I, I always think, you know, I wrote this book on a plane. I think it's the perfect plane read because it makes it like, makes it like being on a ride at Disneyland, right? You know, you've got this, the sounds and the smells and the, the shaking of the turbulence in the plane. It makes it like, like a, a more immersive as a ride than yeah. just sitting, you know, laying no, on your couch reading a book. Uh, no, thanks. I, I can imagine this being, you know, everyone knows the bookstores that are in airports and they're all full of uh, fantastic books and this is a fantastic book, but you can imagine people going, you're not getting on a plane <laughs> with that. And the customs will, will check through your bags. Have yeah. you got any uh, liquids? Uh, do you have any weapons? Do you have any books by TJ Newman? <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, it's funny because when people read it on planes, it's like a lot of the passengers are like, you know, Oh gosh, I shouldn't exactly what you're just saying. Oh, I shouldn't, you know, do this. But but the crew, when they see the books, and I've heard this a lot, look, flight attendants are trained to think like this. Pilots are trained to think like this. This is how you want us thinking is in worst case scenario of what if something goes wrong? What am I going to do about it? Because then in the unlikely event that something does go wrong, we're ready. We've already had the dress rehearsal. We know what the protocol is. We know what we're going to do. So this sort of, you know, in the moment, considering everything that could go wrong, this is exactly how your flight crews are trained to think. It's a, it's a, it's a safety thing. It is all. And I, I mean, probably overstating it, but but not by much. Is to say, it is a love letter to to cabin crew because because the the crew on this flight um, behave professionally. They they know what they're doing. It it reminded me of something. And actually, you're going to be able to um, tell me whether this is complete nonsense or not. But I read this was a while ago that um, up until nine eleven, um, cabin crew were always told that if something is going wrong on the on the flight, you don't transmit that um or, or even even through your your face your demeanor you don't transmit that to the passengers because it will only cause panic and it will make the situation worse but direct because of what happened on 9-11 where obviously uh, people overtook the plane and it would have helped to have other passengers involved then that advice had then had then changed and i wondered whether is is, is that true i mean first of all is that true or or is that something you know about and uh, would you agree that this is a little bit of a sort of uh, a love uh, a, a love letter to, to to cabin crew around the world i would agree with both of those points you know 9-11 changed everything i was not flying at the time but my mom was my mom's a flight attendant um it's so is my sister we call it the family business um and you know 9-11 changed everything with regards to how we handle threats how we deal with threats um and and I actually wrote about it in my first book. There's a short passage where I described, you know, before 9-11, if you had something go wrong on the plane, um, any sort of threat, you were trained to appeal emotionally, right? Flight attendants used to be instructed to carry pictures of like their children or their pets in, in their badge so that if they're dealing with someone that's hijacking a plane, which was very common in the 60s and 70s, very, very common, the skyjackings, um, flight attendants were trained to appeal to them emotionally and try to convince them to, 
you know, come to a peaceful resolution. 9-11 uh, changed that, and it, it changed all the training and the way that, that flight attendants um, deal deal with a threat on the plane. To your second point, is this a love letter to aviation? Without a doubt. And it has been um, a real pleasure to bring the image of the flight attendant as portrayed as the heroes that they are to the general public. Because most people believe, you know, a flight attendant is on board for service. We're there to bring you drinks, we're there to bring you peanuts, and that's just something that we provide. That's not our job. Flight attendants are on board for safety and security and to assist in a medical emergency. Full stop, that's the whole story. And so these books, which show cabin crew as they accurately are, the responses that I get of, you know, I never knew flight attendants had that much training. I never knew they had that much responsibility. This has really increased my respect for the role of the flight attendant. Nothing, nothing makes me happier than hearing that response. Uh, you mentioned the family business and the fact your sister and mum uh, have done the same job. I, I think it's worth just mentioning, TJ, because you, you, uh, you wrote a very interesting article about basically encouraging other writers to keep going, uh, that you, uh, you know, it took quite, although you're a young writer, it, it, it took you quite a while to get to this point and you received very many rejections. Just um, remind me how many rejections you got for this book or the, the first book. 41 agents rejected the manuscript for my first book and that manuscript went on to debut at number two on the New York Times <laughs> bestseller list. So... How long did it take you before you realized that this whole world of telling stories was something that you could actually do? Because I think you have a degree in music theater. Is that right? You worked in a bookshop and you've been an actor. It's taken you a while to get to this point. Absolutely. It's been a long winding road to get here. I studied musical theater in, at university um, and then I did exactly what you do with a degree in musical theater. And I moved to New York City and I, you know, did the whole wake up at 5 a.m., you know, every day and take the train into the city and audition and not book a part and then go to your survival job later that day and then go to sleep and wake up the next day and do it all over again. Um, I did that for years <laughs> and essentially had to... Uh, buy a one-way ticket back home to Arizona and moved in with my parents and, you know, did the whole living in your childhood bedroom in your mid-20s, wondering what am I going to do with my life now that I have failed at the one and only thing I've been trained to do. Uh, and that's when I got a job at the local indie bookstore up the street, which really... Um, rekindled my love of reading and writing, um, which I've, I've always done. I'm a voracious reader my whole life and have always written stories my whole life. Um, but I'd sort of set it to the side to go to New York to pursue that dream. And I picked it back up once I moved home because it was a way for me to be creative, which is an aspect of myself that will never disappear. Um, that is just who I am. I am a storyteller and it let me get in touch with that again without the public, you know, putting myself out there of, of risk that I had just done in New York. So I started writing um, in secret at night uh, when I would come home from the store. 
in my bedroom. And um, when I left the store to be a flight attendant, as I said, to join the family business, you know, that's when I had the idea for my book. And then everything just kind of dovetailed together and, and the pieces started um, falling into place. And that's when I started writing and I wrote 30 some drafts. And then once I had a book, I started, like I said, trying to get an agent, which was 40, 41 rejections. Um, and I don't think without that initial failure in New York, I would have had thick enough skin to keep going through all that rejection that I was having when I was trying to get my book represented. Um, and, and, and somehow I'm here. Somehow it, it wound up with a happy ending because I just kept going. I, I read, TJ, your, um, your article for Deadline about those 41 rejections this morning, and it lifted my heart because I'm, I'm in the process at the moment of... I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not at 41 rejections yet, but I'm on my way. And uh, there, must have been, there must have been a point, because it's great when you say, you know, 41 rejections and then the 42nd said yes, and, and there you are with this amazing book deal. But you didn't know when you were on rejection number 17 or rejection number 18... That, that it was all going to come good at 41. And I know that, uh, so the, the, the way I'm feeling, will I, my guess is, will have been mirrored by how you were feeling, which is these people know what they're doing. They, this is literally their job, is knowing what books are going to sell and which ones aren't. And when you got to rejection number 23, number 24, was there not a part of you that was going, maybe these people know better than I do? And I, I suppose the question I'm asking actually is, what kept you going? Even even with all of that reason in the back of your mind going, yeah, I'm, I'm sure these people know what they're doing, this is their job, but I believe in the thing that I've written. It definitely did not take me until the 20-something rejection to start questioning, huh, maybe they're trying to tell me something here. Maybe I should listen to them. I mean, I felt each and every one of those 41 rejections and the temptation to believe what those rejections were telling me, which is that, you know, the book is not as good as I think it is and that I'm not good enough as a writer and I'm not good enough. That temptation to believe that was there from the beginning. But I believed in this story and I believed in my dream. And I kept going in spite of all that rejection because I just kept telling myself this one thing, which is that I didn't come this far just to come this far. I worked so hard on that book. I wrote so many drafts of that book for so long. And I knew that if I could find the right person, the right person who saw what I saw, I truly believed that, that the sky was the limit, no pun intended, uh, you know, for what this book could be. Because that's it, right? You only need one. You can have a million rejections but at the end of the day, you only need one yes. And my 42nd agent was my one and only yes. And he saw it. He knew immediately. And I, in our first conversation, I understood that he got it and that we were on the same page and that he was the one that I was waiting for that whole time. And that hope is, is what kept me going. I believed that that yes was out there and I just did not stop until I got it. And that book was Falling, followed by Drowning. I'm suggesting for your third book, Tumbling, <laughs> Tripping, Cascading, I don't know, some other thing within, for, which implies downward motion. I told my agent, you know, somewhere in the, in the process, I called him one day 
and it was the point in the the writing process where the pages aren't good and the characters aren't behaving like you want them to and nothing's going right and I called him up and I said you know what the next book's gonna be it's gonna be called napping and it's gonna be (laughs) about people who take naps and then and then wake up and have coffee and that's that's it that's just the whole book because I'm I'm done trying to write these big books the book is Drowning the Rescue of Flight 1421 it's new from T.J. Newman Uh, Look out for the most extraordinary cover. TJ, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again with our Q&A, which will be with you shortly. But for the moment, TJ, thank you very much. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.